Well, if you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Today we'll begin in verse 3 and read to the end of the chapter. And hopefully it'll become apparent, but this text made me think of some rocks in my office. If you go in my office and look on the bookshelves, you'll see some various rocks that I've kept. And maybe part of the reason is that I've never outgrown the fascination that most all kids have with rocks. But there's more to it than that. These are rocks that come from special places and have special memories attached to them. There's a paint rock, for example. That's not the scientific term, but that's what we called them. It's about a golf ball-sized rock, which is hollow on the inside. You can break it open. And on the inside, there, it's red. and You can get a bit of water, pour it in, lather it up, and you have natural red paint. It's a rock, one of many, that came from a summer camp I worked at during college. We would take the kids out to the paint rocks, crack one open, and we'd paint their faces. We'd give them war paint. And it, of course, comes from that camp, which is also a camp, the camp, where I first met Molly Savoy. Well, there are a couple rocks from the main coastline collected from a Wyndham family vacation back in 2015. I recently, thanks to you, I recently added two rocks from Mackinac Island. Um... Molly and I took a bike ride around the island and we stopped at one point and we sat on the shoreline and dipped our feet into the crystal clear water of Lake Huron. And as we sat there, I picked up two small rocks, one for each of us, that would remind me of that moment. Now, you might be surprised to discover this caveman can be that sentimental, but it was my idea. But here's the thing, not knowing any of those stories or background, you could go down and look at those rocks and be totally underwhelmed. You wouldn't be struck by their beauty. You wouldn't think, oh, these are rocks that should be on display in the Museum of Natural History. You wouldn't think they were of any value, and they aren't. It's the memory attached to them that's valuable. It's the kindness of God remembered by looking at them that's valuable. And that's why I've kept them. I'm sure you have something similar. It might be grandpa's old pocket knife. Or grandma's quilt that she sewed by hand. A watch that belonged to your father or jewelry that was your mother's. And maybe they're valuable. Maybe they aren't. But what makes them valuable to you is the memory attached to them. They represent a time from the past where God was gracious to you or your family. 
And we've got one of those in today's text. A rock of remembrance. One that wouldn't be considered valuable, I'm pretty sure, if geologists stumbled upon it today. But a rock that was of great importance to the people of their day. And I hope that by looking at this rock, more light will be shed on a well-known hymn that is commonly sung in the church. And more importantly, it's my hope that you would be prompted to look back yourself and remember the Lord's kindness to you. And so here's my outline. Three points as always. First is God worshiped. Second is God delivers. And third is God remembered. God worshiped, God delivers, and God remembered. But first, let's pray before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to have your scriptures. That you revealed yourself to us and had it written down. And in your kind providence, it has been translated into a language that we know and can understand. So, Father, would you be with us during this time as we open your word, as we look at it together. Father, would you be with me, your servant, who is opening these passages before your people. Father, would you guide my words and would you feed your church? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 3 to the end of the chapter. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and we and, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb And offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. 
As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. All right, on to our first point. God worshipped. Well, it's good, to be, uh, it's good to see Samuel back in the narrative, isn't it? We've been without him for the previous three chapters, and man, is he needed. The people had gotten in quite a mess. Frankly, they'd been in a mess before. All you have to do is look at the priests that had been over them, Eli, and then Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and then their little minions, And just by looking at them, you can gauge the spiritual and moral temperature of the nation. They've been a sinful mess for a long time. And over the last three chapters, we've seen them lose battles. Their priests die. The ark is captured and held for seven months. As we saw last week, the ark then providentially returns. And they're glad, but they worship God wrongly. And he struck down 70 men. And then in terror of the holiness of God, they send the ark away to be kept by foreigners who lived in their land. And then 20 years pass. 20 years of Israel being under the boot of the Philistines. You remember last week, the Philistine lords followed the ark from a distance when it was returned. The distance was not because of their fear of Israel, but their fear of the ark. They follow from a distance. They felt no need to be safely hidden behind thousands of soldiers. They just rode up on their horse, watched the people of Israel greet the ark, and then they went home. And they were able to do that because Israel was subdued and under their oppression. And as we begin today's passage, it is apparent that the people had had enough of their misery. They are 
sick and tired of being sick and tired. And Samuel hears this. Samuel is traveling around preaching to the people and apparently he's hearing them say things like, we want to return to the Lord. Samuel, we're coming back. We've got to get right with him because we are sick of living like this. That's what he's hearing. And how does he respond? Well, we see in verse 3. He gives them a challenge. You know, he, he basically says, prove it. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods from among you and serve him only. Because that's why the Lord has put the Philistines to rule over you. Because of your idolatry. Samuel says, put away the foreign gods. We see the Ashtaroth uh, later down in verse 4. We see the name Baals in place of foreign gods. Samuel is referring to the Canaanite gods, plural. He's referring to all of them. Now, of course, there's Baal, who you hear about quite often. In the Old Testament, Baal is the Canaanite storm god. And then is his wife, Ashtoreth, who is the fertility and war goddess of the Canaanites and the wife of Baal. Tragically, King Solomon, at the request of one of his many unbelieving wives, will build a place of worship for Ashtoreth in Jerusalem. And worship her there. So that's, that's Baal and, and Ashtoreth. But Samuel mentions them in the plural. He's casting a wide net. He doesn't want to have the conversation, oh, but you said only put Baal away. He's saying, no, put all of them away. And direct your heart to the covenant Lord of Israel, to the God of your ancestors. And then Samuel gives a promise of blessing. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. This is the message that Samuel is preaching as he goes from one place to another. And one by one, house by house, farm by farm, the people repented. And began to return to the Lord. And so what does Samuel do? As their leader, he orders that all the people be gathered together for a corporate worship service. That's what he does. He orders that all the people be gathered together in one place and as one body pray and confess their sin and offer sacrifices to the Lord. This is very similar to what we do every single Lord's Day when we gather to worship. Every week, the people of God gather to pray and to confess sin and to once again direct our eyes toward Him and worship Him, remembering that He is the one true and living God and He is able and faithful to once again deliver and free 
his wandering, unfaithful people. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on repentance here because we, I remember we covered the topic pretty thoroughly when we were in the book of Acts. But I'd simply remind you that repentance is far more than feeling sorry about your sin. Repentance is far more than feeling sorry about the condition you're in because of your sin. Repentance involves a turning away from sin and a turning to the Lord. Samuel gives them concrete actions. And our repentance is no different. You know, there are many things in normal Corinth, Mississippi society that compete with the Lord for your affections. There are things in normal Corinth, Mississippi society that complicate and hinder your walk with the Lord. There are things that you look to for comfort, things that you place your trust in, things that are fashionable and normal in your circles. And just like the people in 1 Samuel 7, you must put them away and redirect your heart, the core of your being, to the Lord and worship Him only. This is what we pray for. And we pray for it because true repentance is a grace. It's something that the Lord gives freely to his people. It's not something that is brought about by your own force of will. It's a grace he gives, so ask him for it. You know, almost everyone I read in preparation this week, cited a line from one of William Cooper's hymns. Cooper had as his closest friend, uh, Reverend John Newton, whose letters were going through on Wednesday nights. But Cooper struggled with mental illness most of his adult life. But he was a brilliant poet. And I want to read a couple stanzas that he wrote. And for reference, these come from his hymn, Oh, for a closer walk with God. We do well to make these words our prayer. Return, O holy dove, return. Sweet the messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, Help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. We would do well to make that our prayer. And I think it's safe to echo Samuel and say that in true repentance, you will find the blessing and help of the Lord. And that's what we see next. Point number two, God delivers. We look at verses 7 through 11. And what do we see? Well, the Philistines hear of this worship service. And they have a problem with it. You know, history has shown that 
tyrannical government always sees a united church as a threat to their power. Their first preference, of course, would be worship of the state. But if they don't have that, then at least a diversity of worship. Fragmented religion is much less threatening. But having a whole nation gather together in one place to worship the same God, the same God who had 20 years back stricken their cities with rodents and their bodies with tumors, this is a problem for them. And so the Philistines gather their warriors and they march towards uh, the worship service at Mizpah to disperse the crowd and teach the people a hard lesson. And the people of Israel are terrified. They're in no place to counter the Philistines. But they show spiritual growth, don't they? You notice the difference here? What did they do last time? They said, go get the ark. The ark will save us. What did they say this time? They say, Samuel... Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. You see the change? That's something grace has produced. They are completely helpless, they're like children, and they cry out to their mediator to the one who'd been speaking the words of the Lord to them. And they say, Samuel, do not stop praying for us. Pray that the Lord would protect us and deliver us. Last night, Louvie was sitting on my lap and she was telling me something that my dad taught her. I don't know if they were near the woods at my parents' house or if they were out at the Noxabee Wildlife Refuge. Uh, But she said, Trooper, who is my dad's grandparent name, Trooper said that if we are ever lost in the woods, to hug a tree and sit down under it and yell for help or blow a whistle and then wait for one of the finders to come and find us. You know, the, the idea behind that is you don't want the child walking further and further and further into the woods. Sit down and cry out for help. And, you know, it struck me. That's precisely what God's people are doing here. They don't go and get the ark and march off into battle. They basically sit down and cry out for help in this time of fear and danger. And so Samuel, as God's ordained mediator, prays for them. He offers a lamb to the Lord as a sacrifice. And what happens? The Lord answered Samuel. Verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. 
You know, don't miss that yet again, the Lord is showing the Philistines just how worthless their gods are. Do you remember what Baal was supposedly the god of? But who here, who is the god of the storm? Who's the one that thunders from heaven? Who's the one answering the prayers of his faithful and defeating his enemies? It's not Baal. Baal was a no-show. Just like he would be a no-show when Elijah alone went up against the 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And fire would fall from heaven and consume Elijah's sacrifice. Baal, again, proves to be just as powerless as Dagon. It's the God of Israel who demonstrates his supremacy, that he is God and there is no other. Richard Phillips in his commentary contrasts true religion with false religion. He says, quote, false religion is always an impersonal, impious attempt to manipulate God's power for our own purposes. True religion is a personal relationship with the holy God who reconciles us through the mediator he has sent, cleanses us by the sacrifice he provides, and saves us by his mighty grace. You know, we have a snapshot of the gospel here, don't we? The people, people like you and me, are completely terrified and helpless. They're facing foes much greater And much more deadly than themselves. But what's the answer? To look to the mediator. To the mediator God has sent. The mediator who stands between you and me. And the holy God. And to pray for us. To pray on our behalf. And this greater mediator sheds blood. But not the blood of a lamb, but his own blood. Blood that covers our sin and cancels our debt. And we know, of course, that this one mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we remember that as he hung on the cross, you remember what happened? The sky turned black. It was the middle of the day and the sun's light failed and darkness was over the whole land from 12 noon until 3 p.m. And our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, death, and the fires of hell were defeated. Dale Ralph Davis makes this connection in his commentary and he writes, quote, In Samuel's intercession on Israel's behalf, we see a picture of the office of Christ as our high priest. Here is the true secret of our steadfastness. We rely on the prayers of another whose prayers are always effectual. Nothing is quite so moving as knowing that I am a subject of Jesus' intercessory prayer. That's your hope and trust, dear Christian. 
keep close to the cross and be reminded yet again that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Third point, God remembered. Here's where we get back to the rocks that I started off speaking of. In verse 12, Samuel takes a stone and sets it up and called its name Ebenezer. And then Samuel says, Till now the Lord has helped us. Now we'll come back to that in just a moment. But just to summarize the final verses, we see the Philistines were subdued. The hand of the Lord was against them all the days of Samuel. Cities taken by the Philistines were returned to Israel. There was peace in the land. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. So that's how chapter 7 ends. But what is Samuel doing here? You might walk into my office and say, John, what's with the rocks? Well, what's with this rock? Well, Samuel was a spiritual cardiologist. He knew enough about the human heart to know that it would not be long before they forgot all about the Lord hearing Samuel's prayer and thundering from heaven and decimating the Philistines. He knew they'd forget. He knew that like sheep, they would wander off and they'd forget what God had done and then they would grumble and complain and then they would begin to look and smell and worship just like the world. And so what does Samuel do? He gets a stone. And I'm going out on a limb here. I don't believe it was gold. I don't think it was quartz. I don't think there was anything overtly special about this stone. But he gets it, and he sets it up in a place of prominence in the view of the people. And within their hearing, he names this stone what? Ebenezer. Ebenezer is an English rendering of the Hebrew word that means stone of help. Stone of help. And Samuel did this. So that every time that people would see this Ebenezer, this stone of help, they'd be reminded of what the Lord had done for them. And then Samuel buttresses this, doesn't he? Not only does he call the rock Ebenezer, but he adds the statement, Till now the Lord has helped us. You could say, up to this point the Lord has helped us. Samuel is directing their eyes to God's past faithfulness. To the faithfulness that extends far beyond this most recent event. Think of his faithfulness to your ancestors. To Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. Think of his faithfulness in the Exodus. Think of his faithfulness when Israel was in the wilderness. Think of his faithfulness to give you the land of promise. And you know all of those are more kind of positive, happier memories. But there had been recent dark days for them. And guess what? He was faithful in them too. He took away the ungodly leadership that was leading them astray. He's faithful when the ark was captured by their enemies. He was faithful when they were experiencing the consequences of their sin. He was faithful when 
Your enemies were lording over you. He was faithful to bring you to repentance. One commentator notes here, quote, Even amid the desolations of Shiloh, the Lord was helping them. He was helping them to know themselves, helping them to know their sins, and helping them to know the bitter fruit and woeful punishment of sin. The links of the long chain denoted by Samuel's till now were not all of one kind. Some were in the form of mercies. Many were in the form of chastenings. End quote. You know, that's something all of God's people should remember. That on the cheery days and the dark days alike, whether he is showing grace or doling out discipline, he is always faithful. This Ebenezer was meant to direct their eyes to the past, to what God had done. But what about the future? What could they expect tomorrow? Do Samuel's words, till now the Lord has helped us, mean up to this point the Lord has helped us, but from here on out it's up to us? No way. This God does not change. And by knowing what he has done in the past, they can be confident in the character of his actions in the future. On a different note, I don't know if you caught this, but we've seen the name Ebenezer already in 1 Samuel. You remember where? At the beginning of chapter 4, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and they encamped at Ebenezer. And what happened? They lost 4,000 men in that battle. And in response, they had the terrible idea of going and getting the ark to be their good luck charm. So why would Samuel reuse this name? Why would he recycle a name associated with folly and death? Well, that was the purpose. This rock would remind them of the mercy and faithfulness of God, and it would remind them of their sin. Now, let me ask you something. What Ebenezer's do you have? Which Ebenezer's have you raised up? There are those in Scripture that you can look back to, of course. But I'd guess in your own personal experience, there are figurative rocks of remembrance that bring to your mind the Lord's past works of faithfulness in your life. But I just want to highlight one that we all share. It is a rock of remembrance that is specially raised up the first Sunday of every month. Its table is standing before you right now. You know, I mentioned already that to one who didn't know, the rocks in my office would probably not be viewed as having any value. And I imagine that to an unbeliever, 
who observed us taking the Lord's Supper, they'd think the same thing. But what do we know about the Ebenezer of the Supper? We know that every time we come to this table, we're reminded of what has been done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time we come to this table, we are reminded of the grace of God and our own sin. We're reminded that the storm of God's wrath fell upon another and that it did so because of our sin. We're reminded that Jesus Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for our sin so that we might be reconciled to a holy God. And what does the Lord himself say? Do this in remembrance of me. You know, and there's something else we believe as Presbyterians. We believe that there's more than simply remembrance happening during the supper. We hold that the Lord himself is really present with us during the meal. Not that the bread becomes his literal body or the juice becomes his literal blood. No, we hold that the Lord is spiritually present with us. When we come to this table, we commune with each other and with him as we come as his people to his table. And so we eat and we drink and we can speak the same words Samuel spoke. Till now, the Lord has helped us. When you hold those elements in your hand and you remember what the Lord has done in the past, you should be encouraged and confident and strengthened by what he will do in the future. So to end, here's my charge to all of us. To look back at monuments to the Lord's work in your own life. Think of all the good he's done and then take courage that after all he's done, he's not going to abandon you now. Look back at those monuments and by faith declare, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Let's pray. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Heavenly Father, we do stand in the present but we look back on the past. We remember what you have done. 
in order that we might be strengthened and steadfast for tomorrow. Father, we do thank you for this table especially that comes to mind this morning. For what we experience in it and what it teaches us, not only about you, but about us as well. And Father, may we, like Samuel, be those who joyfully confess, till now, you have helped us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.